Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. June Rodel of Austin's McGuire Mormon Hospitality on the show. Hello, how are you? Great. Thank you so much. Nice to have you here. Thank you. So you were born in the Philippines. Yes, I was born um, and lived there for four and a half, five years. And uh, my mom is a nurse. She was recruited by a Dallas hospital called Baylor. And she left me with my grandparents. So I actually didn't really know her until she came and got me. And she was recruited with this group of nurses that you still call aunts and uncles to this day. Um, and I've been in Texas since, since 1980, end of 84. But what was the Philippines like when you were growing up? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, you know, I was the first grandchild of many grandchilds to come, or grandchildren, grandchilds. <laughs> um, and it was it was great. You know, we were we lived in a poor suburb outside of Manila, but... Maybe I, I idealize it because it was so much fun and I have like these really amazing memories of my birthday because my mom was out of the state. She would send me these wonderful lavish gifts. So I have these super colorful memories of really awesome like dolls and these extravagant cakes and my birthday is on Independence Day in the Philippines so there's these great parades and people getting drunk in the streets but Looked like they were just laughing all the time. So I have really fond memories. That's a good birthday party. Very good birthday party. Very intense. I still like to do do it hard like that. Yeah, pretty much exactly, <laughs> exactly the same the thing same. happens today. Yes. <laughs> There's parades in the streets for June. Yes, yes, yes. So you get to Dallas and what's Dallas like? Um, well, I cried a lot because it was so it was so big. I remember I remember getting lost in a grocery store when I was five. That's actually just, happened to me like yesterday. Yeah. In Texas grocery store? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's weird, right? I mean, we have open-air markets in the Philippines, so we went, I went to my first Kroger or something, and I turned the corner, and then I couldn't find my mom, and I lost it. I lost my shit. It was hilarious. Very, very distinct memory. Um, I had to learn English in, in three months to be able to go to school so I wouldn't be behind. My parents really wanted me to stay on track so I, I could make friends. So that was a little, it was intense and important. And I still kind of very self-conscious about it. I ended up getting a a BA in English so I could feel like, oh, I understand the English language. But I mean, idiomatic speech, like jokes, 
like things like that, no, I'm not good. <laughs> it's funny because you're always laughing though. Like I associate you with a very um, easygoing personality. Oh, well, yeah. I and mean, I think a lot of it is like I laugh at myself because I'm pretty honest when I don't know what's going on. Like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. Because <laughs> you could have taken the other way and been like the serious like EF Hutton guy. Been yeah. like, I can't tell jokes. No, <laughs> I can't. Oh, man. I did my first intro yesterday um, as so an examiner. Yeah, when you lead in an intro course for the court. Exactly. And I started off with a joke and it was boarsville and i just laughed my ass off because i thought it was really funny <laughs> i guess we got a bunch of stiffs here coming I, into the line business. i was like that's fine <laughs> last time i got a response like this was with the egyptian mummies right, exactly <laughs> how long were you in dallas I was in Dallas until 1996, until I went to school. Okay, so that's a fairly long time. Yes. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I'm a Texan. And so you got involved with wine. What happened? Like? I went to school in 96, I, and then I transferred to University of Texas in Austin. Oh, in Austin. Yeah. And, you know, like most people, it's it's not a unique storyline, but you work at restaurants to pay your bills. And, you know, I lived off campus, so I had a lot of freedom, which was really great. And I started working in this super old hotel called the Driscoll Hotel. It's the most historic hotel in Central Texas. And it's haunted. It's really creepy. Is I it haunted with sommeliers? Because that would be awesome. I think not a sommelier has yet to die there, but It would be pretty cool if there was like a ghost that was like, try with the a shovel. Of, with a taste Wah. of on. <laughs> 66. <laughs> like you can hear it like in yeah. the background. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there were some creepy stories in that place. And I am not a fan of The Shining. Right. Me neither. And really freaks me out, it, actually. Yes. And the hallway really looked like it. It was so intense. And if you're the only one milling about at four in the morning, I did one room service shift. So then from that that point on, I was in the bar as a cocktail server. Right. You're like, I'm not doing this Scooby-Doo routine up in the, in yeah, the room service. Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of when I started getting into wine because there was, prior to that, my first service job ever was at the Olive Garden, which was, hey, you know. When it was, you're there, you're family. Yeah. You exa <laughs> exactly. You know. Still have an affinity for the for the salad for sure. Endless for sure. red basket. I mean, how can you beat that? Unless you're like gluten free or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that's where I kind of started getting into wine because I had stayed there for so long getting my undergrad. They were really, really flexible with my schedule. And then I ended up from the bar into the dining room. There's a lovely tasting menu. And eventually I got to start pairing the wines because I mean, I like to eat. So when you realize when you drink, when you eat, and it tastes better, I really fell in love with that. And I loved the pre-shifts and figuring out the wine that would go best with the food. So then my boss, the food and beverage director at the time, really just let me take over it and started seeing regulars, started talking about wines. And it was you know, an extensive list for Austin in 1999. It was about 250 labels. A lot of iconic California producers, Bordeaux producers, some Italian, um, not super international, but definitely tried to hit all the spots because it's a, it's a hotel. And I kind of started learning about producers prior to learning about what wine is, how it's made, what are these regions about, what's the history. And how did that treat you? I mean, you were into it? Oh, absolutely into it. And mostly I was into tasting and understanding flavors. It took me a really long time to 
gain the lexicon of how to translate wine to people. And I feel that, you know, with my background in English and really trying to hone in on language in general, communication was the most important part of service. It really didn't matter if you got a really amazing wine to a guest if they didn't understand what they were tasting. So figuring out how to translate Obreon into flavors to a guest and how it was going to go with their food was was really the thing that kind of got me into wine. And seeing that look on their face, you know, when they're like, you are right and this works and I love it and it's worth this much money. Thank you so much. That That's really fulfilling. Did you ever have conversations with your mom about that? Like how to communicate something? Because I sometimes think nurses have the hard job of saying like, you know, it hurts now, mm-hmm. but later... After I like, you know, put this on you, it's going to be better for you. My mom, I I love my mom. She's one of my, my heroes. She works so hard. She taught me that working 16 hours in a shift is no big deal. You know, she's very, you can't take it with you. Like work hard, play hard. I love it. Um, But we communicate with laughter a lot. And that's like my infectious laugh and how loud or annoying it is, depending on who you are, is is from her. Just laugh it off, keep working hard is what I learned from her. But I think for me, the communication aspect was from my own insecurities as a kid and not understanding what was going on around me. Oh, and so it made you more empathetic with others who maybe didn't as well. Yes. Yes. You were like, let's work through this together. Yes. What is it that you really want that you're not saying because we have filters between us? Oh, interesting way to look at it. Totally cool. So how long were you at the Driscoll? Almost... Seven years, like a little over six years. So it really was a foundational place for you. Absolutely. Yes. And it was a place where I learned about the aspect of restaurants, not just wine, but how to work with a kitchen, you know, the 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 terminology, the brigade system, all of that stuff that a lot of people don't even hear about. Sure. I learned all of that. I was like, why do people call people chefs all the time? That's weird. What does that mean? You know, and kind of just going with the flow and figuring out where I fit and how to move about it too, how to have upward movement with the idea that restaurants weren't, weren't a legitimate career at the time. You know, you, I was working in a restaurant or in a hotel to, to go to law school, to prep for my LSAT, to, to do something else and then end up falling in love with it. Because at the time you didn't see like chefs so much on TV and stuff. like. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think in Austin or in Texas in general, there weren't a lot of beverage professionals that you knew about. Like you, I didn't know what that profession is. We're, you know, we're in the Bible belt. Um, and also I was young, you know, technically you're not supposed to drink wine until you're 21 or whatever. Um, so. But if was, you can't read the rules, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Really? I, if you're not <laughs> born here, I can, you know, it's a Seem different fine. contract. Seem fine. The whiskey at 12 was real good. Um, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't ever, you know, I, I didn't ever see a sommelier on the floor. I didn't know what that yeah. was. Or I did when my parents would take me to a nice restaurant, but I had no idea what that meant. I thought it was the guy who was serving wine to my parents and, Turns out I'm I'm the person that's serving wine to someone else's parents, and it's a really good job. But how was Austin different than Dallas? Um, well, I didn't I didn't have any money when I went to Austin. I was a, a broke student, so I. But there weren't very many super fancy restaurants or 
um, restaurants that you saw a lot of suits in aside uh, from, you know, your typical Texas steakhouse restaurants. And now as it, as it has flourished, it's ripe for, for new chefs, for creativity, for fun, uh, and kind of where the culinary scene is going. Like it's, I feel like a lot of times the culinary scene in Austin is a little bit behind. I think that the coast undulate into the center of the United States. So we're a little behind in terms of, you know, how serious our food scene is, but there's always a spotlight on it that says we are getting serious. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely in the spotlight and it's definitely a place for growth. But it's interesting to me to think of it as behind because, you know, maybe without social media and stuff, it mm-hmm. would be hard to know that. Like if you were just in Austin. Oh, absolutely. You know? Well, I, so one of my biggest things, I love traveling because I want to know what's outside of Austin. I had opportunities in the past and not to say I don't have opportunities in the future to leave Austin, but I always thought, oh, I'm going to make it in the big city or I got to move to San Francisco or Chicago or New York. I'd need to move to a bigger market. And not necessarily because Austin wasn't great. I love it. I wouldn't have been there for that long if it wasn't. I I still love it and that's why I'm still there. But I felt that there wasn't a lot of resources. Access to wine. You know, what? what is how can you get old wines? We can't do that really in Texas. And looking at lists, I would look at lists online and think like, what what am I looking at? I've never even seen these things. So I thought, dude, I need to move. And I didn't. Um, And I'm happy that I didn't because in return, I got to be able to see something grow. And it seems like you've been at several of the key Austin establishments over your career? Uh, Yeah, I would say yes. Um, I would say that I was really lucky and at the same time, you know, pretty methodical. So a little combination of both. You were in it to win it. You wanted to strive to get to the next thing. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of it is a circulation of the same people also striving to do the next thing. So it's kind of like, oh, your resume looks like you were going for it every two years, leaving a group, going to another group. But really what it was, was other people within the groups that I had worked with prior were also looking to do their new thing and had an established relationship, an established work relationship that really was amazing, really great dynamic. So I wanted to recreate that in a, in a new light. People came to you and said, Hey, we got a new project happening. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that you're motivated, the Austin restaurant scene is motivated to exactly. move a little yes. bit. Yes. And I mean, how amazing is that to see movement and be part of the movement? It's just that we were like jogging side by side to figure out what the next finish line was and then creating a new goal together. It was, it was great. It was great. So why did you decide to stay in restaurants? I mean, you had been taking the LSAT route and why did you leave that? Because I freaked out whenever I was like, okay, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to go to NYU. Like, here it is. I had no idea what law I was interested in. I was interning for three attorneys, like single practices, in the middle of town. And I had worked for them part-time for three years prior to, as I worked with the Driscoll and finished up school and everything. So there was, there was a, a like to multitask, which is kind of what happens with my job presently. 
And they were so cool. They were like, you sure you want to go to law school? I was like, uh, no, I, I really do. I want to do this. And they're like, you seem kind of cooler than an attorney. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, look at how many attorneys are in Austin. And it's a really high attorney per capita rate because the, the capital of Texas is there. It's pretty dense. And they kind of put the numbers in front of me, like average salary, what I'm, what I'm going to go into debt. And I didn't know what specialty I wanted to go into. And I think a lot of promising law students don't know either, but I literally thought I was just going to do that because that's what I was supposed to do. I was buying myself more time to figure out what I wanted to do by doing something that was expected of me. And I sat down and I was like, I really like restaurants. And at that time there was that, you know, that spidey sense that something was going to happen in the Austin market to stick to it, to, to go for it. And so I took a job at Uchi restaurant and that was, that ended up being my first beverage director position rather than leave. I just kind of was like, Oh, I'm going to do this. But originally it wasn't a beverage director job, right? At Uchi. Oh no. I started off as a server. I had waited on the chef owner of Uchi Tyson Cole at the Driscoll as a captain for his anniversary. And we really had great banter. Um, They enjoyed the pairings, the tasting. And so I said, "Um, I want to work there. Usually my tactic is to work where I want to eat all the time. Good idea. Yeah. (laughs) It has worked for me. I was like, oh, I really love this restaurant. I love the feel of it. And I want to be here all the time. And I want to eat sushi all the time. Seemed like a good bet. I mean, I found a lot of times when I've had a job in a restaurant, usually you made enough money to dine there. Not all the time, but yes, as a special occasion. Exactly. Usually, whatever restaurant you were working in, that's how much money you made was mm-hmm. how much it cost to dine there once in a while. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> you know. it's, a, it's a good matrix. I, it's worked for me too. Um, and so he remembered me and he was breaking down like a gigantic salmon when I walked in. And I think he thought like I wanted to go in and make a reservation to eat. Sure. And he's like, what are you doing here? And so I was taken aback. I was like, I'm applying for a job. As he's like got a cleaver in his hand. What are you doing here? And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm looking for an application. That's a great like want to make a reservation line as well. (laughs) What the hell are you doing? Coming over this uh, threshold. (laughs) I just want to give you some money and eat. Um, So he, he was like, okay. And then I filled out my application and classic chef, he really didn't talk to me. And then I left it there and they said that they would call me. And as I was driving home, he called my cell phone and said, where did you go? And I said, oh, I didn't know that. I. This is Tyson. Where did you go? And I said, I left. I thought everybody was, you know, setting up for service and just left my resume there and hopes that I would get an interview. And he was like, no, come back. And I was like, oh, well, I'm actually on my way to work, so I can't come back. So I came back the next day. And my my work at the Driscoll already knew that I was leaving. I had I was like, this is it. I need to make a decision on what I want to do. I mean, it had been several years, right? Yeah. And it was time to make a, a nice leap. And I got that job. And I said, I really think that you need a beverage director. You just told him that. Yes. Maybe also a reservationist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. They've since gotten both. So, <laughs> hey. yes. Dreaming big, dreaming big. No, but, they're fantastic. They're fantastic. But Uchi, what's that? I mean, I don't even know. So, Uchi is a Japanese restaurant group, and they have four locations now. I'm very lauded. He's been the food and wine best new chef in 2003. 
very popular, extremely busy, and really delicious. I mean, honestly, like my favorite thing about Uchi is their sushi rice because it's warm. Oh, I hate it when it's cold. It makes me sad. It makes me sad. I think a lot of people are like, dude, sushi is defined by the freshest fish. And you're like, actually, rice is like half the Mm -hmm. thing. I loved watching the sushi chefs like uh, mix the rice with the vinegar. Oh, my gosh. That was a really great visceral smell that I would get in the morning when I opened the restaurant. But I really loved the restaurant and they've flourished. They have a location in Austin, Dallas and Houston. And they are they're balls of the wall every day. It's funny because when I think of that scent of the sweet vinegar that they put on rice, it often is like the same kind of sense memory that I would associate with certain Filipino cuisine. Yes, absolutely. Like adobo, that's the one thing I can make because it's easy. You just leave it in a pot, but you use so much vinegar and you wait for something to cook down and it transforms into something else as the vinegar seeps into it. And I love that smell. It reminds me of my grandmother. And so what happened when you were there? Um, When I was there, I had decided that I wanted to start pursuing a Court of Master Sommelier certification. So I took my intro. And what was that like in Texas at that time? Was that a thing that people did? or It, It was a thing. I mean, or it had just started to be a thing. It was, I did that in 2007, and I actually got my intro at Texom, which was really cool. Um, full circle. Full circle. That's what, that's a good uh, literary term right there. A little... A little snake eating its own tail kind of thing. I did full squares for a while. Full squares. And then people were like, what? All left turns or all right, <laughs> right turns? Right, right. <laughs> you know, yesterday the Uber driver had like celebrity voice on his uh, on his Waze machine. And it was Arnold nice. Schwarzenegger. Oh, excellent. So, you know, he was like, turn left. <laughs> I insist. But, I mean, you just wonder how much money he got paid for like five minutes of work. Because like really all you have to say is turn left, turn right. You know what I mean? Like right. that's the like, directions. Here is seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, for yeah, thirty seconds. Exactly. Thank you, sir. And then at the end, he's like, "Hasta la vista." <laughs> yeah. But you're like, you probably made tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, I'm sure. To say turn left, turn right, and then hasta la vista. That's like so great. That is so great. <laughs> so yeah, full circle. Um, and I passed my intro, and then the next year I competed in Texom, and I won. The um, best sommelier competition. So what was that like? I I had no idea what I was doing, quite frankly. I I had worked with my really great friend now, Mark Sayer, and he had won previously. Right. And And it was a big thing for his career, I think. Oh, absolutely. Very big turning point. And the same for mine. I mean, that winning that title said, oh, there's something legitimate behind what you're asking that we had a feeling we should do, but we didn't really know what you meant. Back to your employer. Yes, exactly. And so the next week I was like, um, I'm really looking for like, at the very least, a titular change because it's important to me. And I feel like... It's I like Im- that you dropped the titular move. I, like, <laughs> I, like I think you may be the first person on a podcast to use titular. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> we, we have a plaque for I you scored, later. I scored well on that one. SAT is, by yeah. the way. <laughs> Scrabble master yes. over here. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so they, they were like, do you want to just like business cards? And I said, no, I want to sit down and talk about what that would mean. Do you want business cards? (laughs) (laughs) Well, give me business cards as long as it doesn't mean any change in your rule. uh, You know, 
Sure, there's many people who are like, sure, business, we'll change your title. Is that what you want? Like, I've said that to to manager, like, you can make your title, but this is what your job is. Do you want me to change your LinkedIn profile? Yeah, exactly. I'll do it for I'll you. I'll do it. No big deal. Um, and so we sat down and we talked and we had a consultant at the time. It was really great, but the group was growing. We were opening a new restaurant. And so we decided on beverage director and it was our first beverage director. It must have been interesting to open restaurants. It was fun. It is fun. I love opening restaurants. Um, it's it's not unlike uh, running Texom volunteers because I call it like day on wedding planner because you work constantly and then afterwards you get a really nice break and you sit by the pool for eight hours because you worked for 120 hours in a row. And that's what opening a restaurant is like. It's super exhilarating. It pushes you. It makes you appreciate downtime. And I think sometimes a lot of people don't. Like they get worried about their downtime. They're they're relaxing too much. Um, and it forces you to because you have no more steam. Right. Otherwise, you would just completely burn out. Exactly. And so what was important when you open a restaurant? Like what are the things that you have to do? What are everything? Yeah. I mean, you really need to make lists. Because I remember the first time. So Uchiko, which is a restaurant from the same group that's completely separate from their Uchi chains, they that was their first second restaurant. And making the leap from restaurant one to restaurant two is, I think, the hardest. Because there's all of these conceptual questions that you have to ask yourself. Do we want this to be the same or do we want this to be set apart from what we already are? And there are a lot of of characteristics that people loved about the original restaurant and it was whether or not we were going to continue to grow with that or replicate it completely. And so that was, those were huge, huge questions and questions now with every restaurant that I've opened. So I taught, I, I learned a lot about that. And then a lot of, a lot of it is being flexible. You have to be willing to be okay with being out a month, but then you have to take a second and understand how you're going to relay that to staff that you've hired. Are you going to pay them or are you going to help them find a job? Are you going to be okay if they find something better in the process? How important are they? How how important are they to retain that you can actually build that into the business plan? Things that I had never even thought I would ever have to worry about in my life. But really, really good foundation of just restaurants as far as like how I how I build even like teams and staff and training and how to treat people because that's that's people at their worst and at their best at the same time and at that time you're in your 20s yeah yes yes i'm in my mid to late 20s so you're in your mid to late 20s and instead of making decisions for your own career which was something that probably stressed you out during certain moments of your life sure now you're making decisions also for other people's careers and their career paths yes and how did you find that it was easy to communicate with them as in terms of this is a staff and I need to talk to them. And mm -hmm. how do I do that? Or was it not easy? It's not easy. It's not because you have to balance what's most important. And it's hard to say that you are not the most important person on the ship, but you have to make those decisions. Everybody wants to be the most important person on the ship and you want them to be as well, but you have to be able to make those quick decisions and just hope to God or hope to whatever that you made the right one. And if you didn't, you have to be able to think quickly to remedy it. So what were some of the big successes you had while you were at Uchi? 
opening Uchiko was an amazing success in and of itself. The restaurant is fabulous. I love it. And one of, to me, looking back, one of the best successes is that if I go there, people that I hired to be servers are now GMs in that company. And it's such a good feeling. Like we made the right decision together. Like they came to me, they were hired, they loved it. They're still there and they're still happy and they're still moving up. It's, it's an amazing experience to walk in the door and they're the first person that you see to greet you and they, they run the whole restaurant. It's nice when you want to go back for salmon rice. It's true. It's very true. Like, remember when I introduced you to your husband because you guys were both servers here? And now you're like... I'd like a reservation for is four. Is there any chance I could get an extra iced tea refill without having to pay for that? <laughs> exactly. It's many benefits. Many benefits to that. But what about the beverage side? What did you find was going to work and not going to work in that kind of fish-driven environment? Um. Wow. That is... That was hard. I will be, I mean, I think that that was one of the hardest lists to maneuver. Is that because Texas is essentially in the past has been associated with big red wines and you weren't going to serve those or you were trying to serve something different with fish? Exactly. And it's striking the balance. It's also understanding your guests, like how, how can we push our guests? Like for instance, a lot of the food was really, really adventurous. Um, much of the food has is just in Japanese, and you rely on the server to translate it for you. Like Aji and Samaji? Yes. And you're like, actually, they're totally different. Exactly. Like, why is this the same thing, right? No, mm-mm. Nope. So, and it's all in Japanese. And, but you have, you know, non-Japanese people, lots of Caucasians working there. So there's that, I'm going to translate this for you. I feel good. And if people are already taking the leap on food, sometimes they want to hold on to something that they know. Like, oh, I'm going to be super adventurous of this weird food and do the omakase and and give me anything when it comes to food. Because that is why I walked in this door. I will take the Cabernet. Because they need to hold on to something that they know. and Or vice versa. If they're going to a pizza joint, there's this fabulous pizza joint in Austin um, called Buffalina. Really delicious. Very simple. I know as a New Yorker, you probably don't think that it's good pizza but it's actually really great but his list is all natural wines like things that you've never heard of but the thing that people hold on to are comfortable about is that they're getting really good simple pizza so they can jump off a cliff and get a rad wine that they've never heard of i think it was a little bit opposite at uchi because there's a lot of things like the service is really fast paced you don't know who your server is everybody's bringing you food there's like you know weird things happening. You're supposed to eat with your hands. What am I supposed to do? I want Sauvignon Blanc, you know, and it's, and it's okay. It's totally fine. So there were things that I did like changing definitely more white wines, more Rieslings, more crisp wines, less oaked wines, but then being honest with myself and saying, I'm going to need a Cabernet by the glass. I just want to pick the best one. I just like, this is the price that it needs to be. And I'm going to pick a really delicious one. And if someone wants one, then they're going to get a good one and I'm going to be okay with it. And ba- basically I just told myself to grow up. 
a lot of times I feel like sushi restaurants are not built for volume or scale. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's the 10 seats at the counter and here's the 10 seats at the table. Right. That's what we can do. Mm-hmm. Was this a bigger operation than that? Yes. And it grew as as the years passed and its popularity grew. It started off, the original was a little house and there was 80 seats. Then they expanded the seats to 20 more. And then Uchiko, their second operation, is about 140 seats. And then their other two operations are about that size. I'd say about 140 or so. Did that affect what you needed? Because I, you know, I'd say like, oh, we got twenty seats. Maybe I can do a couple of wines. I can get six bottles of. But if absolutely you're doing not. Yeah, all of these. People, not even a thing. Not even a thing at Uchi. You had to make sure that you had you had the ability to get that and to get it in volume. Wines by the bottle, sure. And even if it were by the bottle, you want. I wanted to make sure that there were at least two cases, three cases of that, to be able to turn it over, so I could train the staff. It was very, very fast and difficult to be a sommelier on the floor because it was it was just such a fast-paced environment you had to make sure that every server knew every bottle on the list and it was 70 SKUs, nothing crazy um so in order to make sure that we had a training to get all of the information to the servers and for them to taste the wines then i wanted to make sure we had at least like three four cases maybe of of a high-end bottle and sometimes I feel like it's difficult to convince people that they actually should have wine with fish as opposed to a different beverage. Whereas that's never a problem at like the Italian restaurant. You oh, don't have to exactly. be like, you know, you yeah. guys should have some red wine with the pasta. It's never like a question. Yes. Whereas at like sushi restaurants, I feel like people are like, like, maybe I'll have beer. Yeah, I'll have maybe beer I'll and sake. sake. Exactly. Maybe I'll have a sake cocktail. Yes, you know? yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I learned a lot about sake and that, and that restaurant group for sure. And it was great. And we got to do private label, fun, very fun things because there was enough volume. That is the foundation of me becoming a beverage director, whereas the Driscoll is the foundation of me becoming a restaurant person, a hospitality person. But how do you convince the staff to you know, really be interested in wine when maybe even the kitchen staff, which didn't grow up with wine, is not so into wine? Well, further along, we basically opened the kitchen staff up to the trainings. At Key, an, a restaurant that I opened with Paul Key, who was the chef at Uchi. That's why we started that venture together. Um, we forced, I don't want to say forced, maybe that's not the right word. We um, we mandated that the kitchen go to every beverage training so they would know about it, just so they had access to it. Because I think that helps, helps the kitchen understand how to describe flavors too. And it it's, it allows them to taste their food in a new light. Of course, their palates are great, but maybe they've actually never understood how to pair things together. And it made them honestly more proud of their food because they could see it in, in different lights. It was awesome. So you work with Paul Key at Uchi and what was Paul Key like or what is he like? He's great. Um, he's very erratic and really humble, really fun, kind of crazy. And he's like family. He's Filipino too. So we, we, you automatically have that connection, right? There's not a lot of Filipinos in the restaurant scene in Austin. So immediately you're like, I like you. Okay. Oh, you work hard too. Got it. Oh, you laugh a lot. Okay. We're going to be friends. Um, and we shoot it straight. We are very, very direct with each other. So we can yell. And then the next second, we're like, oh, we got that out of the way. Let's move forward. This is great. He tapped you to work with him later. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. He um, had a lot of success. He won Top Chef and broke from the Uchi group to create his own projects. 
And so he was going to make his his flagship restaurant, Key, eponymous. Um, but he also had these casual restaurants called Eastside King, which is really great. His partner is this awesome Japanese dude named Moto Utsunomiya. And he moved to Austin to learn hot Texas blues, like specifically. So he's in this band called Eastside Kings, Texas Eastside Kings. We don't want to copy it completely. Um, they're all like 50 plus, like they're all black really rad, gray-haired, amazing woman singer, and there's this bald Japanese dude in the corner playing hot Texas blues guitar. It's awesome. So he got together with Paul. We all worked at Uchi together, and they created Eastside Kings. That blew up. And so there's many, I don't even know how many locations they have now throughout Austin with more, more ideas to grow outside of the market. So when I got on, when I came on, it was to be the GM of Key. And I think like two weeks into it or right before we actually started getting into the heart of like, who, what's our concept? What's our food? He was like, maybe I just need you to be the director of operations for everything because we're also opening these things and I feel like you can do this. <laughs> like, okay. So I got thrown into that, which was totally different. There's like trailers, a commissary kitchen, counter service, and many of them. I had never done anything like that before. But did that kind of take you away from beverage a little bit? Absolutely. And that was one of the biggest um, challenges, I think, because in the entire process of moving from restaurant group to restaurant group and working, I was also moving along in the court to get my certification. And opening that many restaurants and just, you know, managing that many people, I would say, maybe, maybe 10% of my time was managing the beverage. And the kind of, you know, you lose a little heart. And I think as you move up in your career, a lot of times the very thing that you love about it diminishes because you get more responsibility elsewhere. And that's exactly what was happening. Because people need someone who can organize, talk to staff, deal with construction details, make mm -hmm. things happen, right? Yes, Build sure. structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I know myself. I know that I'm pretty direct. Like, my, I point at people and say, like, you should do this. You should do this. Okay, now go do this. In 10 minutes, this is what needs to happen. Because I, I like puzzles and I want things to go. And I like logistics. And I happen to be good at it. And if someone sees, you know, I do the same thing with staff. Like, oh you are good at this and you should not be doing this. You need to go to this restaurant. This is what we need. We need a beverage person at this restaurant. We don't need a server at this restaurant. We're going to build you up over here. But it sounds like you kind of had to do that with yourself and be like, you know, I'm good at beverage too. And I want to get back a little bit to beverage. Absolutely. I love that. Not, not only would I say like I'm good at it. It's what I love. And it's really special, I think, when you find something that you're good at and you absolutely love. I love music. I suck at it. You know, I love writing. I am a good reader and assessor, but I, I am a horrible writer, shit writer. It makes me very sad. So when you find something that you love and you happen to be good at, it's very fulfilling. And I was like, what am I doing? And also, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of, sadness when I didn't pass my master exam right away. And I think that maybe that's me being a little bit delusional. Well, it seems like you put a lot on yourself. I do always, always, always. Because lots of people don't pass it the first time. Of course not. Of course not. And, you know, you just hope. You hope and you hope that you do enough work. 
Um, I was like, you know, if I had more time, I could have, I could have gotten through theory because I had passed tasting and service on the first go. And I knew, I knew going in that I didn't, I didn't put in enough time. I didn't have the time. And it wasn't like I could have altered time, space, reality to create more time. There just wasn't any. You weren't dealing with beverage every day. No, no. And I wasn't, it wasn't applicable to my life. Uh, so what'd you do to change that? I left my job. Yeah. It was hard. I it bet. Because it, it sounds like you were high powered at a, at a group that was like moving. And I love them. I mean, I like, you know, I'm not a very emotional person, but I asked them for a little time off to think about what I needed to do next because it was, I thought I was going to retire at Key. I thought this was it. I found my people and we're doing this and we're doing this together because it's very rare to be in a group with people of the same mentality that are willing to work as hard as you, willing to stand behind you, willing to lift you up when you need it. When I walk into that staff, I went there for my birthday recently. When I walked in and I was like, yeah, these are my people. They're great. Did you also learn things from their challenges or from their successes in terms of your peers? Did you say like, oh, interesting way to handle that? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I think that having the same work ethic isn't the same as working in the same way. And so I think as long as you have the same goal and excitement, you learn from people because nobody's going to work the same way. In finding managers for the restaurants, there was a lot of Skype sessions involved when we were, we were looking for the right GM for Key as I was uh, opening other things for them, we knew, okay, this isn't going to work. We need to find the right person. We were like, this is our guy. His name is Bill Mann. And he used to work in, at uh, Frankie's in New York and some other awesome place. He's great, but he's like, he's a ginger. He's awesome. He's fiery, but he's like, this is the goal. This is awesome. I'm a restaurant person. It's about hospitality. And I was like, okay, this is, I like this guy. This is our person. And I knew immediately, like, I needed to find someone who was going to be more soft-spoken and more nurturing, but with the same goal and fervor for the group, but showing it in a completely different way so that it could work together. It was, it's weird to know right away, like, okay, I need this kind of person to, to make sure that the staff can thrive because certain people can't work with fiery and intense. They need nurturing and calm. But as long as the goal is the same, we're moving in the right direction. So after you left Key, what happened? So I left Key. Um, there's this restaurant group where I currently work called McGuire Mormon Hospitality. It's weird because nobody knows what that means because it's only in Austin. And every restaurant people is in Texas different. don't know what Mormons are? No, no, no. Only Protestants. I'm kidding. Maybe only a little bit. Um, the the group is great. And that is, as I said before, it was a good move to start working at a restaurant that I always wanted to eat at. This group had six restaurants that I found myself just circulating the map of where they were throughout, you know, my dining experiences in town. I would go to Clark's Oyster Bar one day and then, oh, I feel like I really want something really fresh and light. So I'd be at Josephine House. I want a really amazing steak, lobster thermidor, delicious lamb. I'm at Jeffrey's, you know, and, and I 
swear to God, I think I was just like throwing my money at this restaurant group. And the owner, Larry McGuire, I had known just throughout being in restaurants. He's Austin born and bred. He's been there forever. So he really knows the city and he loves to eat out. And so I would just honestly like wait on him or be the manager on the floor, see him all the time. We'd talk. And one of my best friends who was a chef at the Driscoll way back when is his executive chef, Rebecca Meeker. And she and I talk as friends do. And I was like, I don't know. I really, I really feel like I want to get back into beverage. This is, this isn't working. I, this, this is important to me. I want to be a beverage person. This is what I love. Um, I can apply all of those wonderful operational skills that, that I have really gained over the years. If there are programs that are big enough to be able to like move things around and be able to find puzzles to solve and also lots of people to talk to, all of that stuff. I just need to find the right thing. And she's like, you should talk to Larry McGuire. There's six restaurants. They're fast. They're big. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of booze. And there's not a person there to manage all of them. Like there's not someone to see the forest for the trees. They're all autonomous restaurants which is wonderful, makes it great, makes my life awesome because there's a lot of different concepts. So maybe I, I love Argentinian wine one day. There's a barbecue restaurant that's perfect for that. You know, high-end Bordeaux, not really something that we sold at Key, but now there's Jeffrey's that I could sell that at. You know, there's really, really great pockets that you can always put something in that you love and adore, which is difficult to do if you only have one restaurant and a really small list. I feel like a lot of times you've been in the spot of saying to someone, hey, you should get a beverage director. That person should be me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I I don't know if that's pompous or just direct. I don't know. Or maybe it's just that the scene was growing right at the time that you had the skill set. Sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, and in my mind, that's what was happening. Like, oh, there is this group. It's It's big. And I think that it needs a beverage director. I wonder if anybody has asked. And maybe it's just me just asking. Like, ever thought of this? Maybe we should do it. I would like to do this. Let's go for it together. And there were a lot of talks because, I mean, Larry knew how important Key was to me. He was like, are you in this? Is this you? Are you sure? Because we want to find the right person. You know, do we need to look for someone who – and? And this is what I appreciate is the, is the directness, like longevity. And I was like, hey, every job that I've had is not thinking like, oh, this is going to last a, a couple of years. It's like, I don't think that I, I don't think anyone can work 18 hours a day thinking this is only going to last a couple of years. And if they do, it's not very smart. It's, that's hard. It's a hard investment. So I told him, this is like where, I, well, I didn't exactly tell him this, but essentially it's like, where, what other group in Austin is this big with th this amount of wine and booze and beer to work with? Like, this is my dream. Like, this is what I want. And I love this town. If I was seeking this out, like I couldn't go to New York to say like, oh, you know, I think that you should hire a beverage director and it should be me. Like, there's no way. I don't know the laws. I would need to 
figure out what the beverage laws were, where distribution was. It would take a lot of learning curve as far as like that back of house stuff to be able to actually manage a program in a different state. And here is like six programs, big, lots of volume, and they didn't have anybody to do it. So it worked really wonderfully. In Austin, what's the approach to spirits versus wine? I mean, what are people, I think we all know the stereotype about Texas, big red wine, mm -hmm. but what's, what's the reality for spirits? What's the normal consumer usually looking for? I think it's very polarizing. You either are looking for the craft cocktail, like beautiful, high-end, house-made everything. I macerated these cherries in this jelly jar in my house for 10 weeks kind of thing. Or you're looking for a shot in a beer. It's hard to be in the middle. Um, there's a few bars that are doing it well, and I think they're onto something, but it's hard to be in the middle. That's it. Uh, you get a lot of restaurant bars that are great. And either way, or you get a bar bar that's, I am a cocktail bar, or you got to be able to deal with like fast paced things, highballs, vodka sodas, Lone Stars, lots of Lone Stars, lots of Pearl, lots of, you know, like big beer companies. Um, but then I think restaurant bars have really stepped up their game to be more specific to their concept, which is really great. And where did your own palate for wine move over all of these changes? Working at Uchi, working at Key, you spent some time at Congress, and then McGuire, Mormon. I mean, where is June's palate going in those times? I think that it's definitely moved with the concepts that I've worked with. And rightfully so. That means that I'm tasting wines for what I'm what I'm making, what the the program that I'm I'm creating, right? So at Uchi, I tasted so many white wines. It was like Riesling, 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 Riesling all the time. And not that I love it. I still drink it all the time. But, you know, I was so focused on that, so zoned on that unoaked whites and trying to find new things for your staff. I was tasting like, oh, let's do natural wines. Let's do, you know, oh, let's try some Sicilian things. What about some Marsala's? Like just lots of lovely, fun things that I think went well with sushi. Um after that, moving into Congress, that's definitely more of new American, American cuisine. So I was like refinding my love for red wines. Like, oh man, look at all these new producers that just popped up in California. I've never seen those before. So it was kind of taking the chip of like, I only drink old world wines. Riesling is my favorite. I love white burgundy off my shoulder, which I think everybody, I think everybody does it. It's like the it's like an, it's easier for me to make the beer analogy. When I was in college, I could do a keg stand, right? I drank a lot of Lone Star. Then I was like, oh, beer is really awesome. So I need to know about beer. So then you start, I started drinking Belgiums, triples, and they're a little bit more lush and complex, but palatable because they've got some nice sweetness to them. And then you like take it to the crazy next level and you start becoming like an IPA head and all you're tasting is hops. And I was like, ah, oh, I want this to taste like I'm chomping on a hippie's head. I don't know. I mean, like it was like over the top. And then I realized like, this is 
this, I don't want to drink this every day. I really just want to drink a Lone Star. And it's that full circle thing again. It's like realizing that there's wine for everyone and it's all delicious. And that's where I am now. And it has to do with having six concepts and realizing, okay, when I'm eating here, this is probably what I would want to drink because it goes really well together. No judgment if this is your favorite wine. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc goes awesome with East Coast oysters. So more power to it. Like we're going to blow through this at Perla's Oyster Bar. When I'm at Jeffrey's, I want to drink Burgundy. So then that satiates my love of the Burgundy producers, like my love of Fourier and Barto and Rumier and all of those producers. And I'm like, oh, yes, I want to drink that today. And then when I'm at Clark's, that staff is kind of smaller and super geeky. It's a easier staff to manage because the restaurant's pretty tiny. And they ask for like, you know, I really love that Vader Malberg. And I'm like, okay, yes, I absolutely want you to, to sell this as much as possible, as much as we can get. So, you know, they're very like producer driven. They love more natural wines. They're interested in funky and new. They ask for, you know, they're like, can we get some more Cobb Franc in here? And I was like, yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, of course, like, you know, how about something from the Canary Islands? <laughs> okay, well, I will look for it for you. So it's great to get that feedback. So now I think my wine my wine love is just about getting in all the information as possible to see what's out there to give to people so they can find the wine that's good for them. Is it also about getting into wines? Are there challenges in terms of so with such a diverse range of always being able to find what you're looking for on the wholesale side? Oh, man. There's like so many wines that I can't get. And I look at a list from a different region and I'm like, oh, what, why? Um, Texas is a huge market. It's essentially four markets in a gigantic state. So it's like saying like, here's the East Coast and we're going to put it in one state under these laws. And then a lot of people refer to it as the Texas market. So, you know, there's a couple different things. A lot of times if there's a wine that I've had elsewhere that I think is wonderful, they aren't in Texas, but they'll be somewhere else because they just simply don't make enough to, to get into the Texas market. Like they have two cases. How are we going to divide that amongst four markets? It's not going to happen. Or it only goes to Dallas because that's where their importer or broker or distributor's warehouse happens to be. And they divvy it up immediately. And I never knew that it it showed up. And a lot of the remedies to that, I think, is sommeliers and beverage directors getting together and talking to each other and saying like, hey, have you had this? Rather than keeping the secrets, like look at this secret wine that only I know about. Rather, I want to say like, have you had this? We should get this. Let's find the importer. Let's call them. Let's see if we can get it. Okay, let's find them a distributor. And then like, it's been, it's been an honor and kind of weird, like very disarming Sometimes when a producer will call me and say, hey, what distributor do you think we should go with in Texas? And I'm like, wow, I've never been in distribution, but let me tell you what I'd be looking for as a buyer. So we connect the dots and try to get them into the state. And there's been definitely some successes, which I'm very proud of and happy for and happy to serve. Like when I serve that bottle, I know how much I worked for that. And I'm like, yes, 
do want this wine. And our distributors, have they been open to that from Absolutely. hearing from the buyers? Very, very open. Um, remarkably so, I think, because we do have two gigantic distributors in the state, one fairly large one and the, a smattering of small ones. And they've been very open. I know that those, as the bigger distributor gets, the more hoops you have to jump through in order to get a wine. And a lot of them are very accommodating. And I appreciate it. I have very good relationships with my distributors. And so it, it's been helpful to you to get together with other people and kind of voices as one group that you would be interested in this wine, right? This right. particular yeah. wine. Power of the many, right? You know, it's it's an easy bet if a buyer, and granted, dependent on the buyer, knowing like, oh, this buyer does pick up all of their pre-sales. Like they order 10 grand worth of blank wine. I know that they're good for it. And they're really honest with me. You get three buyers from three different markets that have that amount of wine to purchase. And they're saying, if you bring this wine in, we will buy it. It's a no brainer. Of course. Like, okay, let me start processing it. Let me call this producer. Do they have this much wine? It'll be here in a month. What about when those wines get to the consumer? I mean, you've been in the Austin market for a long time. Mm -hmm. You've seen a lot of what I would imagine change in what restaurants are available there mm -hmm. and the level that they're working at. Have the consumers changed their desire for wines? Are they really excited about new wines coming to the market? Are they still focused on the wines that might have sold 10 years ago? Or because it's a university town, is it a different consumer every year? No, I I think that Austin itself is very excited about wines. And while the price per person is going to be lower in the end than your Houston consumers and Dallas consumers, the amount and of styles of wine is more vast because they're willing to to try different things well i feel like a lot of times when people are looking for more value mm -hmm. the selection becomes more vast like the, yes. what they're willing to try becomes more open exactly because they're looking for value exactly yes so and, and you know there's always like this thing uh houston people will say like great we'll ship you all of our ribola or whatever and you're like okay because they're not going to sell it because they need harlan or whatever and i'm like can i please have a couple bottles of harlan it would really i could sell it really easily too so there's definitely this push pull but it's all in good fun um i think i'm very honest uh in austin i mean for our group our by the glass items that are our highest movers are rosé and sparkling rosé for all locations which was very surprising to me. And are there certain price points that cut across location? Like, is there a normal for what people like to spend on a bottle of wine in a restaurant in Austin that transcends, like, what kind of cuisine it is? I think if you're looking at a casual restaurant, that sweet spot would be for a by-the-bottle, 75 or under. And then if you're looking for a higher-priced restaurant, that price point would be anywhere, depending on the location, between 80 and 125 those are pretty common price points. When I started working at Jeffrey's, that was those were the most expensive wines I ever sold. Like it is weird. I didn't know that there was that Austin consumer in town, and it was a pleasant surprise to be able to sell Grand Cru Burgundy on Sundays and Mondays. So, who is the Austin consumer, or is it a lot of things? It's a lot of things, and I think it's dependent on location because you do have a university demographic. And you still, if that is your consumer, you need to look at a $7 price point for buy the glass. We have 
old school money and we have new school money in Austin as well. And I think that you can push it to 25 by the glass for day to day and maybe do some like 30 to $35 by the glass for specials and during the holiday season, October, November, December. You have six restaurants, right? From mm-hmm. McGuire Mormon. What's it like to try to run six beverage programs? I mean, functionally, how does it work? It's a little dance that you do <laughs> every day. Uh, I definitely need to be flexible. A lot of times I just have a list of things that I need to do and I just do them until I'm done. I hit a restaurant, each restaurant once a week. So there's some restaurants that I'll hit twice in one day or two restaurants in one day just to make sure that they have everything that they need. I usually do a training at one restaurant each week and then a very extensive training at a restaurant each month where the entire staff is is there. So does it end up becoming kind of like developing relationships with the staff at each place to be your eyes? Oh my God, absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise I'm a fish out of water. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, in the past I was like, oh, consultants, I don't know. Like they never know what's going on in the restaurant. So now I find myself almost in that same position because there's so many restaurants. So it's very, very important to have a great relationship with your point person at each location. We are very casual. We don't have sommeliers on the floor except for at Jeffrey's, which is a more traditional, like we have sommeliers, we have a larger list is about 450 selections. There's sellers, there's There's a huge inventory system for it. Everything else is about anywhere between 40 um, wines or 75. Pretty small, simple, but fun and very tight list, which was where I started, right? That was what Uchi was. That was that model. So I have to have someone who's there to tell me like, this isn't working or this is working. And so you take over lists that have already been around for a while, like mm-hmm. all of these restaurants already existed, yes. unlike some of the key concepts where you develop them from the ground up. Right. So when you came in and you looked at them, were there things that you said, huh, I have a little bit different vision of how we're going to organize this, what kind of selections maybe would work, or was it kind of already a, a ship that worked well? So you said, well, let's set the sail again. So if it's a ship that was already working very well, it's much harder to change how it works. So we have really, really high volume restaurants. So making those changes have been very slow because you don't want to put too big of a kink in there and try try to change people because then there's that push-pull. You've got to let them know that you're willing to figure out what the restaurant is like first. That's super important. It's kind of like when you go to France, you can't say, well, in America, this is how we do it. You've got to say, oui, merci, derrière. You have to say all of those things before you're like, you understand the difference or, or you're, you're, no one's ever going to help you out. And in a large group like this, and this is not a large, large group, there's about 450 employees. You won't be able to make anything go if your staff isn't behind you. So I've got to talk to the server to say, like, isn't this cool? Like, this Chardonnay producer does this, this, and this. Like, it's barrel fermented, and it's really rad, and it goes with this lobster. It's amazing. And let them taste it so they have a connection to it and a connection to me. But that almost sounds like the same kind of approach I might use as a if I was a kid moving into a new school in a different town that was very different from where I grew up and mm-hmm. I wanted to make friends with people. Yes, you have to. And, you know, 
you have to make friends or no one's going to see your way. You seem like a very goal-driven person. What are the goals? What are the goals? Yeah, now. I mean, it's funny that you say that, trying to figure out what that next goal is. There's always there's always been a goal of having something of my own, for sure. And this group is definitely open to that. Uh, and it was discussed in the very beginning to open something together that was my mark on Maguire Mormon. So I'd love to open perhaps a cocktail bar, a wine bar, and then grow from there. And in this entire process of learning about Maguire Mormon and getting settled there, we've also, oddly enough, acquired a very high-end retail, you know, two high-end retail stores. So that's totally different and new. And we want to try to take that to the next level. What's create, that, put a bar, put, put a bar, bar in, in a high-end retail. I mean, and, and this is like pretty, this is probably the premier designer retail store. It's called By George um, in Austin. So that's where your, like, your Helmut Langs and your Lanvin, your Mesomar Majella, all of those are all those producers. See what I did there? <laughs> all of those designers are in the store, in this boutique. And so the next aspect of it was like teaching retail staff about hospitality. We did like beverage training because we have a bar in the men's selection in the men's store. And now we're creating craft cocktails for each of the locations. So that's their signature cocktail whenever their personal shopper comes in. It's been really cool. Very interesting. And it's been awesome to see like a retail worker eyes open up like, Oh, I, you know, the other day I was like, so when you're walking people, like maybe walk with your hands open like this, like doing the four seasons walk, like, and then walk them halfway to the bathroom, but don't walk them all the way to the bathroom because that's, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, ah, I, that, I never thought of that. It's been really cool. And they're like, this is really cool. And so we're incorporating coffee, like some town coffee into the locations too, because having like a coffee maker in the back is we can step it up. So putting those fine-tuned aspects of hospitality into a retail shop has been pretty interesting. Uh, and then the next step for the group is to open a hotel as well, which is already in the works um, ETA end of 2017. So a lot of staff there. So you said that Austin is often featured, and I my sense is that National publications who want to find the cool restaurant often look to Austin to be the representative for Texas. Mm -hmm. And so it does acquire more kind of national stage presence because people in national publications are often looking for innovation to stand out, mm -hmm. you know, because it's the same restaurant you've been to always forever isn't a good story lead, right? Right. <laughs> so what about Austin is still yet to be discovered. Like what about it is still not properly told at the national level? What as an outsider, what I may not understand about Austin that seems so clear to you? That we have too many barbecue restaurants. Seriously. I mean, it's kind of funny that that is such in the limelight and perhaps I get it because if I go to the Philippines, the thing that I want is for my grandma to cook for me. I don't want to go to a restaurant. I want that authentic thing. So the authentic thing at in Austin is barbecue. And it's really weird because that's just, that's like the ends of the beef. 
that's burnt ends. It's delicious. <laughs> but it, that's what it is. And I'm like, why are people so crazy about this burnt end thing? Like you just, and you drink it with a beer and you know, we have. That's we, such a sushi restaurant thing to say. Though. <laughs> I mean, really, when you think about it, you know what I mean? I mean, and we have an amazing, amazing barbecue restaurant and literally we're honest about it. we're like it's fancy barbecue it's you sit down it's expensive there's a wine list like what's that there's a wine list with barbecue it's crazy talk craft cocktail like no i mean people like wheel their kegs into barbecue joints and that's rad right and i think if you are from the outside looking in you're like that's what i want to do and i'm sure when i go to a big market and i'm like i want to go to the slanted door people are like are you serious you want to go and i'm like i really like it I like those, like, you know, radish. Well, apparently a lot of things. people do. Exactly. Because <laughs> that place is busy. And which is why, which is why, like, there's a crap ton of barbecue restaurants everywhere. And, like, there's one that's, there's a chain dedicated to barbecue attached to a gas station. Their corn is really good, though. It's, it's Rudy's. They're good. But, I mean, that's the thing. Like, we have a barbecue restaurant. And the thing that I want to eat at that barbecue restaurant is the enchiladas. They're the best thing on the menu. I don't want the brisket. So maybe it's just overdone in my eyes. But as an insider, I'm like, mm, uh, that's kind of it. You know, Tex-Mex, still love it. It's because I like queso so much. It's like a food group. Um, but burnt ends. <laughs> it's not hard to make. So a lot of change in Austin, a lot of change in your personal career, a lot of development, a lot of growth. What do you think has most surprised you along the way in terms of your own career progression and what you learn. Uh, man, the, that I'm doing it, honestly. Like, what am I doing? Whoever thought that I would be a beverage director for a restaurant group, that who'd ever thought that I would be a master sommelier. I mean, that's those aren't even words that you've ever heard of until you're in your 20s, you know? So it's weird. It's definitely a, a very sharp turn and who I thought I would be as a young adult, you know? In my teens, I thought, oh, clearly I'd be, like, it's crazy. Like, oh, I think I'll be an upper middle class tax attorney. Like, you just, like, throw something out there. Like, that seems good. That seems like what you're supposed to do. I feel good about that choice. And, like, nobody wants to feel good about the choice. People want to feel awesome. And it's kind of cool. Like, and it's good to know yourself, too. I've realized very surprisingly that I have turned into my mom that I'm a workaholic, that I like working 16 hours a day. And if I don't, I feel weird. I feel guilty. I don't know if it's like some weird Catholic guilt or something, but I'm like, I should be working. Like there are days when I come home and it's 9 p.m. and I feel weird. So I just open my laptop back up and then my boyfriend will close it immediately. Like, don't do that. I'm like, well, maybe I'll just check a couple more emails or I could get ahead on something. So those that's been very, very surprising. And very surprising that I have created my job around communicating with people. Because in the beginning, I thought that I would be managing inanimate objects, bottles of wine and liquor and coffee. But really, it's managing people and learning how to talk to them. And that's kind of the most exhausting thing because you're your neurons like are firing at all cylinders trying to figure out if you really truly understand what someone wants from you. And if 
you know, if you're ingrained to please, if you're ingrained to provide good service, it's so important. There's all this like internal energy inside me that I'm like, get to the right solution, get to the right solution. And a lot of times it's a lot of talking and I go home and I'm like, I'm just going to like speak to no one for a little bit. June Rodel, she's been firing in all cylinders in Austin. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. June Rodel of McGuire Mormon Hospitality Group. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.